Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 422, Masters Recap and a Titanic Rabbit Hole. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, going pretty well. Had a busy weekend of sport, busy Sunday with all the various, I mean, my sporting Sunday started at 7 a.m. and finished at about 1 a.m., so I'm fully recovered now, but yeah, good weekend. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if you've seen the uh, Dan Campbell quote that came out a few days ago. Um, but you could have been the player in question. Apparently when he was on the Dolphins, there was a player that came in every day reeking of alcohol, <laughs> but yet he performed to the highest level and never missed a rep, never dogged it in practice and was one of their best players. <laughs> so, so are you saying I could have been him because of the still men managing to perform? Yes. Or just the smelling of alcohol. Okay. I'll take that as both, a compliment. But no, it's both together though. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, my, my I had zero alcohol uh, yesterday, so I, w- I wasn't out over the weekend. So I was consuming a lot of sport, but not consuming it in a in a bar and not consuming any alcohol at the same time. But I mean, that got me to questioning. So there was a actually kind of a backlash about this and how this is indicative of the terrible toxic culture of the NFL, and to me. I kind of thought maybe that was a little overblown, like a little bit of the media taking it too far because I mean, obviously one, yes, you don't want someone to be coming in reeking of alcohol, but his quote was actually that even though maybe outside of the job, he wasn't taking care of himself when he got there and got, you know, to the facility, he was a leader on the field never missed the rep, never missed anything, didn't mess up. It didn't affect his performance, he doesn't think. So is it a big deal? Well, yeah, because you would hope that in any job and in any company or organization that people would care for their employees and their colleagues for more than just the office hours. So just saying, you know, if if the two of us, if you were just a complete disaster, just an alcoholic outside of our recording sessions, and I was like, well, as long as Frank turns up and he's not slurring during these 90 minutes, I don't care what he's doing the rest of the time. And so I think from that aspect, I mean, you, you also have to assume there might be a degree of hyperbole in him saying, oh, he turned up every day stinking of alcohol. But I mean, I don't know. Well, I probably had one. I'm, I'm, I probably had. One. I'm going to read you the quote. I'm going to stop you there and read you the quote. I remember I had a guy in Miami. God, he loved ball. He was a dynamic football player, but he came in every day just reeking of alcohol. He was probably on a bender for who knows how long, but God, he loved football. He showed up. He didn't have any missed assignments. He hustled nonstop. And it's like, you know what? You'll find a way to make that guy work. Not saying we want those guys, but he loved ball and he had success. And he's still playing today, by the way. Well, I mean, I guess that means he was young at the time. So that is also different. I mean, I probably had one job in my life where there may have been some colleagues who looked back and described my, I mean, I, I don't think I was stinking. But being a bartender, that's like part of the job. 
<laughs> no, no, this is what no, this is when I first worked at UNESCO. I'm not talking oh. about being a bartender. I, <laughs> no there's, I would say I don't. I, I would I would say that I almost never turned up to a bar thinking of booze because by the time your shift started, you, you know, naturally seeped in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's that's a little bit different. But I mean, there were plenty of times, you know, that that was kind of me first starting to work, but being a young person where I was out till four or five in the morning and then turning up for work at eight o'clock and was capable of doing it and was able to perform. But I'm sure with hindsight, I, I always thought I turned up looking fresh and, you know, presenting myself in the best possible manner. Probably I had some colleagues who were aware of it. And again, I wasn't an alcoholic. It was not every day. But there were definitely days where I was out partying till five and then, you know, like a Thursday night and turning up for work on a Friday. But thinking, did you show no up, knows. not have any missed assignments and hustle nonstop? I mean, I was good at my job. <laughs> so I'll say that. I didn't miss work. So good you're not there anymore. <laughs> I was there for three years. Whoa, a whole three years? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Frank. Are you at the same place you started your first job at? Well, technically, it's my first job. So, yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I, I don't know. I, I think that would be the concern is just someone, if you felt like the person was doing things outside of their, I mean, there's two things. You can't possibly imagine that he, even if he is still delivering, that he is kind of having the best possible output yeah. whilst turning up stinking of booze. If so even if you go, oh my God, he's still great. You should be thinking to yourself, Imagine. how good would he be? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a failure in that respect from a coaching perspective, but then also just from a human standpoint, you would hope that Sam and, and maybe he did and he's not wanting to go into all of those details, but you would hope someone sat down and said, hey, just so you know, we kind of know, do you have any issues? Is there a way we can help you? Yeah, I think that's actually the part that is concerning to me, not the fact that there are players coming in off benders because also, I mean, you're in an occupation where that is just so in your face, you know, as an athlete, I'm sure they're asked to go to parties every day of the week, you know, like, Hey, can you come attend this? Can you go here? Can you go there? But I think the, the bigger concern is the fact that Dan Campbell is saying this, but didn't follow up and say, we tried to see if he needed help. <laughs> you know, like we we tried to point him in the right direction and tell him that if he's this good and we can smell something concerning, imagine how good you could be if you cleaned up that part of your life and came in fresh and refreshed. Sorry, fresh, refreshed, fresh and rested and was actually ready to go. Yeah. And again, I think that the challenge there is at what moment in time are you discussing something too publicly? I mean, if I'm him, I don't think you even address this publicly unless you can talk about a complete story where it is the person getting to a point where they are certainly past these problems to hint at the fact that, hey, he's still in the league and imply that maybe he's still up to the same thing. I think that's not great, but I don't know. It, it would be, I'd feel uncomfortable if he was also just telling someone else's story and saying, and then look how great I was. I then helped this person. You know, that would seem unnecessary, but I can, I can understand why someone would look at that and say it sends the wrong messages regarding the culture within NFL teams. I, I, I think the key word there is NFL teams because the NFL has quite the history of off the field 
instances. And this, I'm sure, is a contributing factor to many of those instances is alcohol-related and drug-related. So in that regard, too, I think it's it's a bad – I think that's the part that's a bad look on the NFL is – it's, the, it's not like the NFL is a squeaky clean league and, oh, you had guys coming in off benders, but, you know, off the field, you know, the NFL is sparkling reputation. <laughs> no, again, though, even if you're not even, I mean, I think that's a fair point, but even if you're not linking it to some of the, you know, kind of worst behavior that we've seen from NFL players and, and also in a sense sort of implying that, you know, this is a, at least an acceptance or turning your, you know, turning away and ignoring indications of a risk of that type of behavior. I think, I think just on a human level, it's not good. I wouldn't be proud of myself if I had an employee and I was just, they were coming in on a daily basis and there were clear indications that maybe they were struggling outside of the office. And I just said, well, hey, nail all of his KPIs this month, though. So, who cares? <laughs> you know, I gotta keep, I gotta keep pushing that train till it stops rolling, and then, you know, hop off when it's done. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's you know part of the reason why Sam left our podcast, right? I mean, we kind of forced him to to get help and you know clean himself up before he came back, and it looks like he's never coming back. So, yeah, I can't solve those problems. <laughs> They've yet to find a good cure for that. Well, would you hold it against Scotty Scheffler if he showed up to his practice round Tuesday a little hungover now that he's a master champion? No, no, no. I think I think if you're just out celebrating, then I think you can afford to go on a couple of weeks of bender without anyone really judging you. You know, I think that's fine. But yeah, no, the Masters... I have to admit, in recent seasons, aside from, say, Tiger Woods winning and that storyline, but fundamentally, a lot of these Masters have been a little bit of an anticlimax, not because of who has won them, but just because I, I think most people would associate Augusta with being this really challenging course where people can slip up down the stretch. And obviously, yesterday, you kind of had that happen to Cameron Smith. But for the most part, we've seen leaders be able to get a lead and hold on to a lead. And you are seeing these people establish a lead in the second or third round and then just never really be caught. And that's just disappointing from a spectator's perspective. But it was an enjoyable tournament um, and had you know lots of little talking points. I don't know where to start. Whether It feels sad because I think in some respects, Scheffler is maybe the third most interesting talking point out of everything that came out of that weekend. <laughs> I mean, I think... Tiger Woods is still the dominant story, even if... Followed by Rory. <laughs> yeah, followed by Rory doing what Rory does, which is being way off the pace and producing a round that makes it look as if he was in, in with a chance of winning, even if realistically in the moment he never really had one. But no, I, I mean, Scotty Scheffler's transformation as a golfer is kind of astounding to go from someone who had not won on the PGA Tour to have now having won four of his last six tournaments, being world number one, winning his first major, kind of turning into a dominant golfer, a little bit out of nowhere, basically post Ryder Cup. But um, Yeah, so, I mean, just to detail that a little bit, it, he in 57 days, he went from winning his first PGA Tour event to becoming the Masters champion. And 
within that, like you said, he's won four tournaments. So he started with the Phoenix Open, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, where he won $1.5 million. Then the Arnold Palmer Invitational, $2.2 million. Then the WGC Match Play for $2.2 million. And now the Masters for two point seven. So quite a two-month payday of about, you know, almost a little over $8 million. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think the money is the big aspect because I don't think he was exactly struggling prior to that. But that's pretty intense to think of in in two months. You go from never winning an event to being eight and a half million no. dollars richer in two months. Sure. But it's not like you only get paid in, in on the PGA when you win. So, you know, it's not like he, oh, I, he was an amateur turned pro and then all of a sudden made eight million. He will have, I'm sure, I, I guess we could look up his career earnings. I'm sure it was a pretty nice amount even before this run. Yes, this has probably accelerated his earnings significantly, but I doubt he was struggling financially before 2022 rolled around. Yeah, for sure. But I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the issue with the Masters, and it's just hasn't been exciting. And it led me to think, and this is kind of where I was going to ask you one of the questions is golf is a sport where it's so slow that I think casual viewers will only watch it if there is you know, some level of close competition where someone's down one or two trying to catch someone or or things like that. But then when I think about it, the majority of people who are watching the Masters are going to watch the Masters no matter what. So do you think... I don't know if that's true. That's what I was going to ask is, do you think that they lost a lot of viewership because Scheffler was up, what, four strokes the majority of of Sunday? I don't know if it's such a huge, like, I don't think they're going to say they got a, some massive knock in terms of the viewers, but I am sure that they know deep down, A, based on the fact that it was Cam Smith and Scotty Scheffler, that that's not attracting the same number of eyeballs. As I think that's maybe. the bigger issue. But, and that's with, I mean, they are the two informed golfers in the world. So in some respects, it's a little bit insulting to the two of them because coming into the tournament, they were the informed golfers. They probably, over the course of the four rounds, Cam Smith's sort of back nine aside played the course the best, but it's just that you're missing the star power. And you almost felt it a little bit in terms of how Rory was able to steal, even over the course of that final round, so much attention yep. when he was six, seven shots off the lead. Oh, let's, and let's, like, well, and let's be honest, the best shot of the whole tournament was Rory holding out in 18. And I couldn't even tell you what Scheffler's putt on 18 looked like to win, but I can tell you what Rory's chip. Really? Yeah. I mean, he missed. I mean, it was a pretty, he missed two short putts and then eventually made it. But I, look, I, okay, best shot in the tour of the tournament is a different argument because that's just a But most iconic shot. It, 10 years from now, I think you're going to remember Rory's shot and you're not going to really remember anything Scotty Sheffield did. I don't, I, I don't think I'll remember Rory's shot 10 years from now. I will because it went up and then it went woo. All the way back down. <laughs> I don't think people, I think it's like anything in sport. People don't remember highlights that are not associated with winners. I, I saw a lot of people comparing which one was better, Tiger Woods's chip in versus Rory's chip, you know, the iconic Tiger chip in where the, the ball slowly tracks towards the hole. I mean, it's, it's obviously the Tiger chip in because that he was won. him going, <laughs> yeah, he won the tournament that year. So whether or not it was easier or, you know, more impressive from a technical standpoint who really cares 
but the highlight is always going to be more iconic when it's associated with a winner or the reverse when it's associated with a loser. So like, you know, uh, Spieth having his disastrous 12th hole a couple of years ago, iconic highlight because he went from being comfortably in the lead to blowing it is, will be remembered more than Cam Smith finding the water because he just went from maybe having a chance to be to be to being totally out of contention or uh what's his face uh vandeveld right <laughs> yes no i mean yeah that's probably the most iconic losing memory which is crazy but... that that's over 20 years ago just fyi <laughs> yeah that's crazy can 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 we just that's one of the time the things i don't need anymore i don't need constantly when people are covering golf or any sport for that matter, when you have an older person participating, I do not need, do you know this guy wasn't even born when Tiger Woods won the Masters for the first time? I don't need it. I don't need, do you know this guy wasn't even born when Tom Brady made his NFL debut? Don't need it. It's, I under, I can process time. I do understand this guy's 22 years old. Tiger Woods won the Masters 25 years ago for the first time. Worked it out. Not an idiot. Speaking of things that you hate, Eddie, I heard there was an Uber Eats commercial that got played quite often on the <laughs> European broadcast of the Masters. No, it's specifically British, but oh, okay. I mean, I mean, it's it's an Uber Eats commercial that's played pretty relentlessly in general. But yeah, it's 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 supposed to get, be this Uber Eats driver giving. It's kind of an interesting concept. He 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 turns up at a kind of disappointed household with their food delivery, and then proceeds to give a motivational speech just in the form of reading out the items that he is delivering. It's played over the sound you hear in the background of Al Pacino's speech in any given Sunday. Oh my God. I love this commercial already. What are you complaining about? This commercial sounds <laughs> it's, amazing. It's so annoying. It's so annoying. Part of why I hate we it is fight because I don't for that inch. <laughs> no, but he's not doing that. Oh, he's not if doing he the Al Pacino do voice. No, he's just sewing. Spicy chicken wrap, quarter pounder with cheese. You know, like that's all. Uh, if he did that filet. in an Al Pacino accent, that would be pretty amazing of an F, of a commercial. I would have that. I would have been on board with if it had been kind of someone doing an Al Pacino impression, maybe even dressed a little bit like Al Pacino on any given Sunday, maybe with a rolled up menu, you know, cause he has the rolled up plate. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> if he had the rolled up menu and he was doing all that thing. And, and, and if it was more on point, I think most people probably watch it and have no idea that that's where the music is from. So the, the reference isn't clear enough to even have most people figure out what it is, but no, I mean, the thing that I got to really thinking about, and this is actually going to help us, this is a kind of transition, but without fully transitioning. You know, I, I thought it was kind of sad. You know, I made the prediction on the last podcast that Tiger Woods wouldn't make the cut. I'm happy he made the cut, although I don't know if he's necessarily all that happy he made the cut because, I mean, he looked just vert, almost crippled by the end of the four days. And I think he might've been happier had he ended up sort of five over through the first two rounds and just missed the cut and kind of taken some more positives out of that versus a very disastrous third and fourth round. Like limping but, the fourth round. Like yeah, it, it was like a struggle for him to walk the course. 
you felt bad well, at a point you're just like come on dude just like you're clear it's clearly not that you're just not playing well you are injured and that's causing you to perform very badly and perform like causing you to not even be able to do normal functions like walk from the tee to the to the green at that point i think you just got to call it um i don't th- see i disagree there if you're turning up you're turning up you know i i think if you're if you've made the commitment to be there, I, I would have I would have been disappointed. If he had been withdrawing from the tournament, I would have said flat out, now you retire. If you can't complete the tournament, just retire. I mean, we, we are talking well, about he a guy could, who He kind of couldn't complete. <laughs> well, he did, though. He, he, did. Shot, he shot the two worst rounds he's ever shot in Masters history back to back. Yeah, but, well, I think, see, that people are going a little bit. I, I He's also old and hadn't played golf for 14 months. So it's not necessarily But his his first round was okay. Like what I'm saying is I don't think it was – But the conditions got tougher too. Not on the third and fourth day. They weren't that bad that he shoots the two worst rounds. I mean it was clear he was deteriorating. His body couldn't hold up. No, sure. But I think people are using – this is my concern. I think people are using his injuries as – complete excuse for his bad before look what were we expecting even if he'd come into this fully healthy the guy hasn't played a, a golf tournament in 14 15 16 months whatever it is he's older obviously than he's ever been coming into a tournament that goes without saying why is it surprising that he's had his worst round in master's history like it would have, it would have been more amazing to me if you'd gone oh do you know what actually his worst masters was 10 years ago that would be – then you'd question, what were you doing 10 years ago, Tiger? Because 10 years ago, you didn't just get into a major car accident and then not play golf for a long time. So what was your excuse then? So, Alcohol and drugs? And, and hookers? <laughs> I mean <laughs> – was that, was that who they were talking about? <laughs> was he showing up to Miami football practice? Just love bowl. But um, I – what it got me thinking was in some ways it's increasing his legacy. This him struggling. It's interesting because even though it's human, it's kind of humanizing him overall, both. I think all of the struggles he's had over the last 15, 16 years have made him less sort of godlike. And I, you know, I use that loosely, but you know, when these, you can see these athletes who achieve this status where they seem as if they're not like us. But also watching him struggle on the golf course in some ways seems, and watching him battle through it all makes him seem, in some ways, I think it adds to his greatness. But it's interesting to see the contrast with some athletes that works and with some athletes it doesn't. Like with some people, when they start to struggle towards the back end of their career, it significantly hurts their legacy. Like, I think Peyton Manning, even though he won a Super Bowl in his final season, some people hold it against him that he was so bad for that final season. The fact that his arm was gone and that he only won a Super Bowl because of how good the defense was, I think some people kind of almost use it as a way of knocking his overall career performance, which is strange because the reverse in this kind of Tiger Woods mentality is what a trooper Peyton Manning was. His arm was basically gone and he was still out there getting the job done even if it wasn't necessarily as pretty as it had been 10 years before. And I think when you have kind of 
we're in an era where we have a number of players playing on way past their prime. And it's interesting to see how each one of them is then being analyzed. I mean, we've not reached it. Tom Brady kind of is still almost in his prime, but we're seeing it with LeBron James, right? Who statistically is almost as good as ever defensive stats aside. But again, it feels like his legacy is being hurt by his team's poor performance, even though he individually is still quite good and he's doing it at an age no one's ever really done this before at. But somehow, the fact that he's playing and not up to the level he's previously shown to be capable of playing at is hurting his overall legacy. I find it very strange how it gets applied to some and not to others. Well, I yeah, I think that's just people just being very short-sighted and not seeing that they're aging, right? I mean, it's maybe people re- like refusing to understand that when you age physically, you're just not going to be what you were when you were 25. Uh, so that, I think that's just kind of people being dumb personally, because I mean, I, I, I see Tiger, I don't, that's, isn't that what makes Tiger Woods winning 2019 just so amazing is that he's at an age where you have people that are younger hitting it further, you, you know, just, physically more gifted than he is right now, but he's still able to overcome that and put it together to win a Masters. Yeah. I, I mean, he's not that old by golfing standards, right? I also do think we get lost in, especially he wasn't when he won last time. But I think he, he's not old by golfing standards, but I think this is a whole other argument we can get into, but I think he's his body is old in terms of being a golfer in the sense that he's been golfing since he could walk. He's been through numerous injuries. You know, there's, I don't know many players who have had multiple back surgeries and this surgery and that surgery, and are still coming back and competing as well as, as he did and winning, winning a masters. No, I mean, that's a a pretty unique set of circumstances, but (laughs) I mean, part of that also is in, and, and not for me to tell Tiger Woods how to swim a, swing a golf club. Part of it is he could probably adapt his swing a little bit more to put a little bit less strain on his body. You know, the amount of torque that he kind of puts his body through, he could probably take 10 yards off his tee shots. You know, coming into this tournament, everyone's like, oh, it's crazy. In his practice round, he was hitting it just as far as Justin Thomas. Maybe you don't need to hit it just as far as Justin Thomas. You know, maybe ease up slightly and then on Sunday you could walk. I'll say and Justin Thomas wasn't crawling to the 18th hole. <laughs> <laughs> but, and and again, like, who am I to tell Tiger Woods how to play golf? I mean, you're and, you're Edward Hewitt. I mean, you're. True. I mean, who else? Who else is there if it wasn't you? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I'm surprised my phone hasn't got a ring from him yet for advice on how to play St Andrews in a couple months. And I guess you know that was the big news. He's confirmed that he will be heading to St Andrews to play in the Open. Which it's good for golf. I'm sure everyone involved in the Open and at St Andrews is absolutely delighted because it just not that again a tournament of that stature does not necessarily need the Tiger Woods bump, but it definitely increases interest and will just drive media attention in the weeks leading up and during the tournament itself. And I mean. A bit like tennis, I think the situation with Tiger Woods, you know, we see it in tennis where no one has really stepped up to fill the shoes of 
that great generation of tennis players who are now coming towards the tail end of their careers in Federer and Nadal and, and Djokovic. You do feel that a bit too with the Tiger Woods issue. And we've had these false dawns with numerous players, with Rory, with Spieth, you know, with Dustin Johnson to a degree, where we've had these young players burst on the scene. And it's like, here we go. Here is the guy who's going to be sort of leading golf for the next 10, 15 years. And no one's managed to do that. I think that's the other. They're just, there seems to be a void when he's not involved, which is the other concern for the sport itself. Yeah. Well, let's, let's piggyback off of that. Do you think it could be Scotty Scheffler? I mean, no. And that's not a knock on Scotty Scheffler, but already part of me feels like the fact that he's having this transformation at 25, even though historically in golf, that actually would make a lot of sense. But just because over the last sort of 20 years, if you're not winning multiple tournaments, I mean, he's the third youngest player to win the Masters, right? So it's him. He's got Tiger Woods before him, Jordan Spieth before him, and, and him. So again, by Masters champion standards, he's extremely young. But I don't know. There's just, A, he doesn't have, he definitely doesn't have the aura necessary. And part of that is you win and you build it. But you need charisma and personality, I think, to be able to become that person. And he doesn't seem to have that. And that's not a knock on him because I think not many people in the world have that ability to, to, to have it. But, you know, even Rory has it more than he does. And I don't know. He just seems like I've watched him win the Masters. He was very, he was very impressive in his performances. And I came away with zero impression about what his actual personality is. Apart from regularly people saying how he's so calm and relaxed and whether he hits a shot into the water or he, you know, chips it in he, he looks exactly the same that's cool but maybe sometimes you kind of need the reaction to generate the interest from the spectator standpoint i mean rory went that was the most animated i think i've ever seen rory mcelroy when he had that chip in i mean he he slammed his club into the into the sand that was pretty uh aggressive whereas you had the scotty scheffler chip in which is obviously much more significant in some respects on what was that, the third hole? And that was the kind of swing that effectively won in the Masters. I mean, I think at that moment in time, I mean, we were speaking throughout the tournament. So he started the day one to two favorite to win the Masters and not to use betting odds as any real indication of your, you know, the probability of you winning. But he was one to two. Cameron Smith was like five to two. And then no one else was really involved in the, from a betting perspective. And by the time when they were sitting next to each other, chipping, about to chip onto the third green, Cameron Smith had gone slight favorite in the betting market. And, you know, I, I said it to you yesterday. I feel like if he hadn't chipped in, he loses the Masters. Like it really felt like it was slipping away from him. And I think that was a huge knock for Cameron Smith because he kind of felt like he'd done, even though it was only two holes in, He'd done so much to claw back that margin. And then it was like, crap, now I've got to do it all again. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's going to kind of knock you a little bit. And then also for him, it, it kind of had to be a reassuring element of, phew, I, I've got away with this. I've, I've played three mediocre golf holes and I haven't lost my lead. And 
it's strange because he didn't really put a foot wrong all that much over the course of that final round from a score perspective. But, and barring the mishap on the final green, he would have had an under par round. So you would have said, I mean, he ended up one under par, I guess, but, you know, he could have been three under par for the round, which is a nice final round at Augusta. But he never felt that convincing, which is the other thing about it. Like, it always felt as if the door was slightly open if anyone else, I mean, the only person who managed to do it was Rory. But if Cam Smith had managed to keep up the pressure, it always felt like there was a, a mistake just around the corner for Scheffler. Well, I, that kind of brings up one of the things that was mentioned, at least in the U.S. broadcast, is uh, when Rory hit his final shot to go eight under, They, while they were teeing off, they posted the updated scores. And the U.S. commentators make, made a note to say the scores have been posted and Scheffler has not looked at the scores and has told, already told whoever previously that he's playing with blinders on and he's not worried or not that he's not worried. He's not looking or changing his play based off of anyone else's score. And my question to you is, do you think that's the right way to play? I feel like a lot of golfers say that. Let's, I, 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 I understand. It's one of those things. It's a kind of a cliche thing to say, but let's say he, he says that and that's how he plays. He goes out in, in the fourth round and he says, I'm not looking at the scoreboard. I'm going to play my round and I'm not going to let the scoreboard dictate any of the shots I make. Do you think that's the right move or not? Fundamentally, no. Because I think particularly once you have a pretty big lead, I mean, and look, it's, it's one of those where it's so much, you judge it based on outcome. So if you play more conservatively and you blow it, people would say, well, you should have kept playing the, with the same way that got you the lead. And it's like any sport, you know, when you make those adjustments, you kind of set yourself up for criticism or when you don't make those adjustments. He took that big risk. What was it on the, f- the 15th or the 16th, the par five, where he went for the green, where there's the creek just before the, and he kind of mishit the shot and he still got away with it. He didn't go into the creek, but and I, certainly on the British broadcast, the commentators were stunned that he decided to go for it. And, you know, you kind of think in that moment, okay, that is what you would have done had you been a shot behind and you're trying to win the Masters. But you do run the risk of just coming across as an idiot for doing something, for not just laying up. So... I, I mean, I, th- I think in his instance... I think that's completely the wrong way to play. And I understand the idea is you're going to play your own game and you're not going to let other things influence you. But at the same time, if you're the last player, you have a competitive advantage where you know exactly what you need to do to win. And that's different. If I'm Rory and I'm playing, then I'm saying, yes, I'm not really looking at the score. I know I need to go out and I need to put up a big score and I need to make a lot of noise and, and have people maybe get a little nervous. Whereas with Scheffler, exactly what you're saying, he's going into these holes. I mean, and the only one that had a chance was Rory, and he finished when Scheffler was on 14 or 13 even. So he knows going into that par five, like, do I need to really do this or not? Like, let me dial it back. It's I think it's dumb to not take an advantage when it's given to you like that. Yeah. And... Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and it's like saying if you're playing match play golf and as if you were not re- responding to what your opponent was doing. And so you watch your, you know, your opponent 
you know, you're you're all square on the 18th and you watch your opponent kind of hit their tee shot out of bounds and you go, you know what, I'm going to try and smash my driver as well because that's what I would have done if he had kind of nailed this down the middle of the fairway. So that's what I'm going to do too. And I get it to a degree. You, 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 you know, you play the way that got you there. But yeah, I think, and also I'm sure he kind of knows. Like he obviously knows he came in with this big lead and he knows that Cam Smith was probably his only real realistic competition unless he had been significantly over par. So he probably knows when he's sitting at 10 under, look, I got to be at least Cam Smith is now three under or whatever he was at that point. He has to know I'm at least three shots clear here, right? So even if you're not looking at the scoreboard, you have to know in your head. I think the interesting thing is your caddy obviously knows, and obviously your caddy is giving you advice that puts your caddy in a kind of awkward position because no, no, you then... need to go for the green here. <laughs> do I? Yeah, uh, I think you do. <laughs> is he supposed oh, I think to that's you... stupid. No, no, I think you should go for the green. <laughs> yeah, is he supposed to give you the advice as if you were, as if there was no scoreboard? And for you to play the best possible shot, which I guess is, or is he supposed to give you the kind of course management advice that you would maybe expect a, a caddy to do? It puts him in a in a little bit of a tricky spot, but and obviously, look, he knew when he was putting on the 18th because he missed the two easy putts, and he laughed when he missed the second one. So he obviously knew at that point he wasn't standing over that putt thinking, "Make this one to win the Masters." I referenced that thing that BBC had done last week where they were interviewing Masters champions and speaking about like the shot that won them the Masters. And I think it was Adam Scott. He said when he was going on the 18th that he had, there was a big roar. And so he knew he was leading after he'd made it on the 17th. I think this is, I think it was Adam Scott. And so he knew, he said, I then, he said he then played the 18th assuming he knew he was leading, but assuming he was only one shot ahead is the way he then played the 18th and he hadn't been looking at the scoreboard. And then when he got to the green, his caddy, he said to his caddy, I feel like I can two putt this and I'm okay. And his caddy said, well, that's, a, that's all right then. Cause you can four putt this and still win. <laughs> and he was like, Oh really? Okay. I've got it then. And I, I'm pretty sure that was either Adam Scott or Trevor, Trevor Immelman. I can't remember, but I don't know what I would do in that situation. I think I would want to know the scoreboard at all times, but I, I also just think it would be impossible for me not to kind of be looking at it. So I might as well just embrace it and, and know the score. But yeah, so a good win for Scotty Scheffler, who to me looks like a less emotional coach Taylor from Friday night lights. <laughs> and coach Taylor was, was notoriously not very emotional to begin with. And, I feel like he's less, but he kind of looks like him a little. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a slight insult to Coach Taylor. Yeah, he's like the Walmart version of Kyle Chandler. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think he's going to get cast to play a younger Kyle Chandler or anything. Let me put it that way. But no, I mean, but if you told me he's got some Kyle Chandler in his blood, I could believe it. <laughs> and just by the way, I did look up his career earnings. So prior to this, he's earned nine million in 2022 so far prior to that he had earned eight million so yes obviously doubling your career earnings kind of the f first three years of his career earning that in the first six months Two of months. the next year <laughs> oh i guess so, yes yeah. yeah that's great that being said he'd already earned eight million over the course of the first three years of his career so he's, he's doing all right you know this is probably buying him a 
a slightly bigger house or building an extension on his house, but he already had a really nice house. I actually read an article today that was saying like, oh, but hold on, because he has to pay taxes, he's actually going to lose like 45% of that. So he's really not making nearly as much as you think. And it's like, ah, I don't know if you could say that when you still take home $1.2 million in cash after taxes, buddy. Yeah, it's a, it's a good problem to have. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 yes, it's not quite as nice as the original number looks on paper, but it's, it's still pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe transitioning to the other story we sort of alluded to, which is LeBron James and the Lakers. Obviously, in one of the most surprising things I think I may have ever seen in some respects in sport, with the Lakers missing the playoffs altogether, which I genuinely think it's one of the biggest regular season failures I can in, in our lifetime. It's it's hard for me to imagine. I can't even think of anything that comes close. Yeah, and, and not making the playoffs doesn't make it sound as bad as it is. When you put the record out there, I think that to me is the eye. 33 and 49 they were this season. They weren't even close to a 500 record. That is just sh- – because in today's day and age, right, a lot of sports now have such large playoff uh, entries, well, yeah, I mean, they've... which which the NBA does as well. So when you say they don't make the playoffs, sometimes you can think like, oh, you know, maybe they had like a 500 record or slightly over 500, but they weren't even close. No, right. I mean, if you think back on the NBA of the kind of 90s or early 2000s, then it seems more believable. But yeah, with this expanded playoffs with the play in games that you have yeah. where more teams make the playoffs than miss the playoffs. Miss, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of an achievement to not make it and to have a team you know, with, you know, two genuine all-stars. Now, admittedly, they've been hurt by injuries. I mean, I don't think Russell Westbrook is a genuine all-star anymore. He's a huge name and they're paying him an ungodly amount of money. I mean, specify current, I mean, because he was like a 12-time (laughs) all-star. Yeah, but I mean, I think you, you expect from Anthony Davis and LeBron James, those two alone, even with Anthony Davis having missed the majority of the season, you kind of think that between the two of them, they should be able to drag you to the playoffs. And then you throw in, I mean, I think Russell Westbrook has has hurt them more than he's helped them. So I think he's a major contributing factor to why they aren't in the playoffs. Which I, but, I love, but. <laughs> yeah, because he has, you know, he's got such a huge ego. But yeah. So yeah, just, I, just to throw that out, that, that was one of the main critiques of the Lakers this season was that they were never healthy together. Um, so the stat is they're the only five man lineup not to play a hundred minutes together. And they were only able to have LeBron James Davis and Westbrook on the floor for 21 games. Interestingly in those games, they only went 11 and 10. So it's not as if when they were on there that they were dominant, they were a 500 team when all three played together. So maybe that speaks to the fact that it wasn't so much that they all weren't playing together, that maybe sometimes when you bring together egos and superstars, it's not always going to work out. Although in the NBA, you think if there is a sport where single stardom could work for a team, you'd think it'd be the NBA more than other sports. 
Yeah, for sure. And look, there's obviously some nuance to that because I don't think Anthony Davis was fundamentally ever really healthy. So yes, even when they're all playing together, it's not like they're getting, you know, a hundred percent of Anthony Davis. And over the course of this season, they used 39 different lineups, which I actually think 40 with their final game of the season, which is incredible. And that's going to disrupt your team chemistry and the flow of your play, even when you then all come back, because you just don't really know how to play together. So it's somewhat understandable from that perspective, but just given the players they have available, it's just mind blowing. I mean, I, I just feel like, and, and again, it, it touches on that interesting subject. There's so many people now who you hear discussing it in the media who, well, this settles the, the Jordan LeBron James debate because there's so many people who would say, well, Michael Jordan would have never missed the playoffs. Like he would have never allowed a team of some relevance to just not make the playoffs. And Part of me believes that's true, but at the same time, and it's difficult to compare in terms of longevity just because of the advancements in terms of nutrition and how they take care of their bodies and the easier playing schedule. But we are talking about a LeBron James who averaged 30 points at 37 years old and in the process became the oldest player in NBA history to average 30 points per game, having already been the youngest player in NBA history to average 30 points per game when he was 21. So... You know, he's kind of bookending his career with these fabulous individual performances, but it does feel like the team's failures do impact his legacy. But didn't Jordan not make the playoffs with the Wizards his last two years? <laughs> I I don't think he did. But I, I guess the difference would be those he joined the Washington Wizards. So, you know, there weren't playoff expectations. LeBron James is on the Lakers with Anthony Davis, really Russell Westbrook. He's kind of the G and I guess also some of the criticism that can be leveled at LeBron James is he's, he's, he's the kind of de facto GM of this Lakers team. And he has made them make several of these trades. You know, he was the one who really wanted Russell Westbrook supposedly. And that's why they ended up with Russell Westbrook over some other players who probably would have contributed more to their season. So he does get an additional bit of blame there for having had the control to sort of build his team and not managing to build a competent one. But I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I feel, I know how I feel about the Lakers failure. It is stunning. I don't know how I feel about how this impacts my overall impression of LeBron James. Yeah. I, I don't actually know either. It's tough. I, maybe you have to wait and put this in perspective, you know, maybe the next few years, he is on a team that's making playoffs and is back in contention, but we'll have to see. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's hard because they have so few moves available to them because you have Russell Westbrook on this huge contract. I mean, he's getting $45 million a year or whatever it is. And it's hard to imagine anyone taking that contract on. So they're kind of stuck with, with Russell Westbrook. So then the only move available to them is to shift Anthony Davis, but it's hard to see how you strengthen your team by losing a player who at this point should probably be their best player and who they definitely are going to get full value for given his recent injury struggles. So it's hard to kind of see the way out for the Lakers, but you never know. But And obviously now they need to hire a new head coach after uh, in the strangest, to add to one of the strangest seasons I've ever witnessed, definitely the strangest firing of a head coach or a manager I've ever seen, which is, uh, you had a Woj bomb, so Adrian Wojnowski, 
break the news yesterday after their their final game of the season when they came back to beat the Nuggets and probably one of their more impressive performances of the season came out and said that uh, Frank Vogel was being fired and that the Lakers were going to end into enter into an extensive and extended period of looking for a new head coach and that someone on the team would inform Frank Vogel tomorrow that he had been fired. I find that I don't understand it. I don't understand how someone is leaking that, leaking that information. I don't know how anyone internally thinks it's appropriate to leak the information without before Frank Vogel has found it out. I don't even know how I feel about the reporting in some respects. The the, ar- whole- the argument with the reporting, though, if if you were to ask Wojciechowski, he would say like, one, that's my job, and if two, if I don't do it, someone else will. Which still doesn't answer, yeah. like, still doesn't solve the problem, though. But like, maybe no one else should. Maybe you know, all people should just wait until things are done internally before it's actually reported upon. But it it is very strange because I don't know in a like who exists in a world where they would not have found that information out. Because as you're alluding to, he then had a press conference after the game where he was then asked about it. (laughs) You know, like, hey, did you see this tweet by Wojciechowski? Like, you're fired, eh? And he was like, I don't know anything. (laughs) And and look, I'm sure he knows. I mean, he's been a dead man walking for a while now. So it was clear, certainly once they were officially out of the playoffs, it was clear he was not going to be hanging around. So. And, and again, he can feel as if, you know, he came in as a defensive-minded coach with his success at the Pacers. He delivered an NBA championship to the Lakers with a defensive-minded team. And then they proceeded to build a new team totally unsuited to playing like a defense-first approach to basketball. So they didn't help him out from a coach perspective. And they really hamstrung him and limited his ability to do, to do his best job. But it was clear. I mean, you have that massive of a failure. You're not going to hang around. Like that's impossible to imagine. So I'm sure it wasn't really breaking news for him. But you'd just be disappointed that someone else is officially being told that you're getting fired before they sit down and have the conversation with you. Yeah, and exactly what you're alluding to. So they had finished, I think, first and third in, or sorry, third and first in the uh, defensive rating the first two years and then dropped to the bottom 10th or 21st overall this year. So a definite drop. Yeah. I mean, look, you get Russell Westbrook. That's always going to happen. Then you have, I mean, they're a very old team and it's hard to play high intensity defensive baseball when you got a bunch of players coming towards the back end of their careers. So they didn't help him. He probably could have done a better job, but they definitely didn't help him to do a good job. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I guess, the, you know, you would imagine that it's one of the most desirable jobs in the NBA, but I cannot, I mean, obviously I would take the job now just because it would be bizarre. But if I were in an, a, you know, a successful, if I was a college coach hoping to break into the NBA, I wouldn't take it because I think you'd run the risk that you go to the, you go to the Lakers, you fail in LeBron's final couple of seasons and, your shot at the NBA is gone because that's just people what people remember you as. And equally, like the only people I could see taking this job are kind of guys who've been hanging around 
NBA coaching positions and are currently unemployed and think, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of that guy who always gets mentioned as a second or third likely candidate for a job. And here we go. I never thought I'd be the Lakers coach, but this is my chance. But I guess what you're saying is you are available. I am officially throwing my hat into okay. the ring for the Lakers coaching position. Why not? And I think, you know, I, could, I think I can fix Tiger Woods' swing, and I can think I can get LeBron James to have his best statistical season at the age of 38. And have the Dodgers make the playoffs. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> easy. I'll, go, oh, I'll, get the, I'll get the Dodgers to the World Series. Okay. Not bad. Potentially win it. I'm not saying that they won't win it, but I'll definitely, the guarantee is World Series appearance. Now, going to, from a coaching failure to two highly respected coaches, you know, we also had the other big match of this weekend was the, obviously, the Manchester City-Liverpool fixture, which was being described as a kind of title decider. In the end, I think because it finished in a two-all draw, it didn't decide anything. It, it's definitely advantage City because it, they stay one point ahead with seven game, seven matches to go. They have the easier run-in on paper. So you'd say it's advantage them. But I think a win for City would have put it out of reach, really, for Liverpool, because imagining City slipping up twice in their final seven matches seems unlikely. A win for Liverpool I don't think would have won them the title because, again, it kind of keeps you still within that one-match reach. But it's advantage City, but as you were, which uh, is interesting. It was a very... It was a good match. It was exciting to watch. I found it interesting after the match, Klopp described it like a like a boxing match. And I think he was kind of saying that he was describing it as in oh, one team scores and then the other t- the other comes back with a yeah. haymaker. I think that's a generous description of how Liverpool played. I think it was more like a boxing match where it was like Rocky there won. Was, there was no TKO <laughs> or knockout. But if you were going to the scorers, the, you know, to the judges' scorecards, it would have been a comfortable victory for Manchester City. I think there were kind of two or three rounds, let's say, of where Liverpool got on top. But fundamentally, it was City with Liverpool at arm's length, comfortably controlling the match. And they'll look back on it and think they should have certainly they should have put the match out of reach in that first half, where they were so dominant for all but about five minutes of it. But over the course of the 90 minutes, I think they were the better team for probably 70. And and they, they, they'll feel like it was a missed opportunity to, to wrap the title up, really. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, City looked like the better club. But I mean, part of that, too, is, is that how Liverpool wanted to play that, though? To play that in that boxing parry kind of format where they were... If, you know, they could if they could hold them and then if there was a leak and they did score that they would kind of go for it and try and get it back and then step back again and say like, okay, now let's just try and restabilize and hold them again here. I think the second half is probably maybe how they felt like they could play where they knew that they were going to have to ride out a storm in terms of it's unlikely that you're going to ever have more possession than city, even as a team like Liverpool. So you're always going to have to imagine you're kind of trying to hit them on the break. And Liverpool are built in some respect with the pace that they have up front and that ability to, to just, you know, string a great attack together. They're, they're suited to that. But 
that first half will have concerned them in terms of the just how below par they were and then also how dominant City were. I think they'll walk away from that. They're obviously about to play each other again in the FA Cup this weekend. There's a strong possibility they play each other in the Champions League final. And I think City will have come away from that thinking, oh, we're the better team. Like If we play as we can play, they can't live with us. So that first half, they were just lucky to still be in the match. I mean, they got a goal completely against the run of play. City probably should have scored three or four in the same period. And also, I think the last five minutes or so, I really thought City was going to put that in at the end there. They had two or three good chances at the end there to just put that nail in the coffin. Yeah, I mean, look, in Sterling's goal, he's offside by a matter of inches. Yep. In in one of these, you know, and look, I'm not disputing it. It's the correct decision, but it's one of these offside decisions where it's just him leaning slightly more than the defender in question. It's not like he's gained any advantage. Joel Embiid also did not like it, Eddie. No. (laughs) No. And very similar. I mean, the end. And so Liverpool kind of rode their luck there. And and maybe that gives them a little bit of confidence because they come out of that thinking, we almost played as badly as we could have, and we didn't lose. So, you know, you can reverse it going into the FA Cup or the Champions League or for the run-in of them thinking, phew, we got away with that one. So maybe it's a sign that this is, we're kind of either a team of destiny in the league or at least we can be really below par and still live with them. But I don't know. To me, it's clear, and I know I've said this previously on the podcast, but City are the better team. Like when, you know, if they're both A plus performances, their respective A plus performances, City are better. But Liverpool just have a doggedness to them where they are able to grind out results in a way that maybe City can't, even though both of them are so efficient. Um, and I mean, it's, it's going to be a very interesting run in, but yeah, I, I, I also came away from that. It just seems like city need a true goal scorer. I mean, Gabriel Jesus was actually very good in the match and his finish for the second goal was excellent, but you just, sometimes you see city, they're kind of building possession and they're just kind of passing the ball around outside the box and getting the ball into wide positions. And then you look in and it's, you know, Raheem Sterling waiting for a potential cross into the box. And you think, I mean, maybe he'll get on the end of this, but this seems unrealistic. And you just, you feel like you're crying out for some kind of more traditional center forward to be there, to be on the end of some of what they're creating. Now there's, uh, you know, they do lose something maybe in terms of how those, all of those players are interchangeable and can play and can kind of take a role in their buildup play. And Gabriel Jesus also contributed really effectively in terms of tracking back over the course of the match and contributing defensively. But, you know, you just kind of look at that and think, gosh, if Harry Kane had been up front for them in that match, I mean, he, he would watch that and think, and think to himself, God, I, I could have two or three without doing too much. Yeah. And Kevin De Bruyne could have a hundred assists. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Harry Kane was at Augusta on Sunday. Must be nice. Yeah. Yeah, he flew out after Spurs' victory at the weekend and was briefly on Sky Sports talking about his golf and how excited he was to be at Augusta for the day. Yeah, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed, though, that match, Liverpool City. I thought it was 
really exciting. The whole, the whole match, you know, it was like a back and forth. There was a lot of chances, both ends, more for City, but, you know, it was action-packed. And I have to say, I haven't seen that vicious of a handshake with Pep and Klopp since since Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Predator. I mean, that was that was an epic handshake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's clear they've got immense respect for each other. I don't think they necessarily love each other. I think that, you know, there's no love lost there. Well, At the same time, it's not on the level. Coming into this, right, there was a whole discussion of, is this the greatest rivalry in the history of the Premier League? For me, it still isn't. And I don't think there's part of what it is lacking is that animosity that we saw. You know, I think the, fundamentally the greatest rivalry we've seen is the Arsenal United rivalry of the late 90s, early 2000s. A, because it lasted for slightly longer than this current rivalry has. So it has that going for it. But just they genuinely hated each other. The players hated each other. The managers hated each other. They kind of felt like there was a complete difference in their, in their sort of approach to the game, their ethos. I think Guardiola and Klopp are not exactly the same in terms of their managerial style, obviously, but in the way they get their teams to play, there is a, there are a lot of similarities. So I don't know. I mean, I, I always come away from these. I really like Guardiola. I think he comes across as a nice person. I, I like it when he kind of loses his mind on the touchline too. I find it quite funny just how animated he is when he gets very upset with decisions. I always feel like Klopp comes across as a little bit like of a dick who knows how to be the nice guy, but when he's really not happy about things, you see some aspect of his true colors. But I, th- I know I'm in the minority opinion, uh, a, nor- a minority with that opinion. I, well, I think Pep is is that person who like clearly uh, was like holds their emotions on on their shirt or on their sleeve or whatever. You know, like he. You can tell how he feels. It's, it's, you don't have to read his mind. <laughs> no. And, and look, I think it was a great advert for the Premier League. You know, and again, I, I think the Premier League, year in, year out, is the best league in the world in just the quality you see from top to bottom and the ability of bad teams to be good teams in a way that you just don't see in some of the other European leagues. But it's rare that you can say the two best teams in European football are both in the Premier League. And I think it is clear that the two best teams in European football are in the Premier League. And to have them play such an entertaining match against each other is just a great advert for the kind of English game. But yeah, I mean, it was exciting. And, and like it's from, from a neutral perspective, it sets it up nicely for a kind of tasty FA Cup tie this weekend and a really interesting run in, you know, you like the idea that a draw could be catastrophic for either of these teams, which is a lot of pressure to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess keeping on the, the football front, Eddie, you mentioned that city, you know, could benefit from a striker. How about Lewandowski? Because I saw today that there are reports that he might go to Barcelona. There are talks. Yeah. I mean, who knows with all these Barcelona, it's kind of confusing to even understand how Barcelona are signing players. So I I don't even, from that perspective, I don't What do you mean? There's no financial problem. (laughs) (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think these are, it's, it's difficult to tell whether, you know, how much of this is rumors and how much of this is him maybe trying to get a better deal at Bayern. Um, 
I can understand why he might want to leave because I don't think he gets the, he gets a tremendous amount of respect, but he doesn't in the sense that people really just put him into the greatest player in the world discussion kind of goes in and is like, is he the best finisher or the best goal scorer or whatever? But he kind of gets left out. And in some respects, it's because he's not doing, you know, people don't focus on the Bundesliga as much as they do some of the other leagues. So I can understand the temptation to either go to La Liga or the Premier League. I mean, let's not forget, he missed his chance to be in the Premier League. He could have signed for Blackburn seasons, you know, several <laughs> seasons ago. Had it not been for a uh, volcano in Iceland, he would have been a Blackburn player. But I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. But, you know, uh, in similar news, PSG have reportedly offered Kylian Mbappe a 150 million euro signing bonus to sign <laughs> sign a new contract with them. But Eddie, Eddie, so. once you take out taxes, it's really, you're losing. So <laughs> it's only 75. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But now, I mean, which... I mean, the amazing thing is, I think he'll turn it down. Now, I do get it. He's he's earning huge sums of money, so he can kind of afford to do it. But it is crazy to think that someone is offering him $150 million in a lump sum. And he may say, now you know what, I'll go play for Real Madrid. Yeah, actually, when I was watching the Liverpool match, um, they were saying uh, Mo Salah wanted 500,000 pounds a week week or a month yeah a week and uh that liverpool were kind of at the four hundred thousand, and both of the, both sides of the scenario to me are just kind of like i don't get either so, I, I can play either side so easy so like at one end it's like five hundred thousand a week to four hundred thousand are you really not going to sign because at that point four hundred thousand is still such an amazing amount of money. But then on the other side, it's like, if you're going to pay him 400,000 a week, you're not going to just bump up to 500,000. Like if you're going to commit that much money, then commit a little bit more of that much money. Like it's just so yeah. outrageous of a concept on both sides to me. <laughs> it is, but it, I think it's also one of those interesting things. The weekly sum sounds so much larger than the annual sum. I mean, we've just spoken about Russell Westbrook, right? Earning whatever it is, $45 million a year. You know, that 400,000 pounds a week, works out to, you know, 20, 20.8 million a year. So, but putting it into a weekly figure just makes it sound so much bigger. Uh, I, I think from a psychological standpoint, that's kind of interesting. And it would be interesting to see if, if you're, if you were in Mo Salah's camp, if you reworked that. So instead of saying, I want to go from 400,000 to 500,000, if you said, I want to go from, you know, 20 million to, uh, what is that? 26 million. It doesn't sound quite so bad. You know, like I want to go from 21 to 26, basically. It doesn't sound to me. It doesn't sound like such a huge leap. Whereas the hundred thousand pounds a week sounds like a massive increase in your salary. But yeah, I think he'll end up signing just because I think of a lack of options. And I think you will appreciate how, loved he is by the Liverpool fan base and the possibility of really going down as a club legend, which he just won't have elsewhere. And also the fact that he's at a club that is really being built to be suited to the way he plays. And you do run a risk that you go somewhere else and that isn't the case. And we've seen that with a number of players who've, you know, like Hazard or Gareth Bale or 
whoever it is, where you leave a club where you are kind of the, the center of attention, not only from a fan standpoint or a media standpoint, but also just in terms of how the, the team itself is playing. Don't know if you saw a little talking point. We rarely talk about Portuguese football, but I was watching some of the Porto match last night, and in the I think it was the 93rd, 94th minute, a uh, fan ran onto the pitch and attempted to hug one of their opposition players and then weirdly somewhat gently kick several of the opposition players. It was a very strange exchange. I mean, in the end, I mean, quite scary, because obviously whenever you have pitch invaders coming on and getting right up close and personal with players, you have no idea what they're actually going to do. So I don't think the players on the pitch were finding it amusing. But it's this, If I encourage people to go and search for the video because it's very weird. He, he does kick them, but it's not as if he's kicking them as hard as he possibly could do. It was very weird. That's so strange. Was he trying to do like that little shin tap thing? <laughs> the little warm Kind of. <laughs> It kind of looks like that. I mean, he's definitely not, and and I mean, it was the home game for the opposition team, and he he clearly was one of their supporters, so he was upset. Porto were winning the match, he was obviously upset, probably with the, the home team's performance. But it, it was very bizarre. Also, speaking of football endorsement deals, I don't know if you saw uh, one of your favorite players signed a pretty big deal with a brand. I think it was last week. Jack Grealish signed a. Seven-figure deal with Gucci. I saw that. Good for him. Yeah, face of Gucci. I love it. The hair of Gucci for sure. Yeah, I mean, I find it difficult. I feel like he should try and become the face of Manchester City first. Like I was kind of striking that balance as to when you seek that additional attention outside of football versus concentrating on your career. I'm not going to begrudge him. Uh, for... I don't think you can pass up the opportunity when it presents itself. Because what if he gets hurt tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, he's making tons of money and he'll be insured. So, yeah, but still, you know, like you never know what's going to happen. And also, look, I don't think, I think he could still be the face of Gucci, even if his career ended tomorrow. I think it would still be former England and Manchester City player, now the face of Gucci. I know what you mean. I mean, he, he did terribly miss a pass in that like 88th minute. <laughs> I think he had a wide open. Kevin De Bruyne on the left side. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting, right? Because if he'd signed this deal coming out of the Euros, you would have said, oh, much deserved. Like he's put in a good Euros. He's had great seasons with Aston Villa. Good for him. But because he's struggled to sort of really make an impact since joining Manchester City, not that he's been bad, but he certainly hasn't necessarily lived up to the billing. Then it just doesn't sit quite right. But I don't think it's awful. I wouldn't knock him for it. But it's just one of those things where you think, maybe wait to sign that until I'll, if I were him, maybe wait till city win the league or win something. And then you get to slip, slip it in under the radar a little bit afterwards of, Oh, and I also am now the face of Gucci, but you know, good for him still. So I've got two little food items, uh, kind of like childhood food items. The first one is we've talked previously about Dunkaroos and how good they used to be and, and other foods you see it as a child. So someone uh, posted an article about, I, I, it might've been TikTok, I forget what it was, that they went back and tried the foods that they loved as a kid, now as an adult, and seeing whether they held up. And Dunkaroos got a perfect score. <laughs> and it said that it was like the perfect frosting 
and the perfect ratio of cookie to frosting in the packaging. And it was just exactly how you remembered it as a child. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the challenge, right? Is, is trying to, is what you want from it is to taste it and it to be really good. Or do you want it to be, and not that these two things are necessarily mutually exclusive, or do you want to taste it and think, this is exactly what I remember? Yeah. Because those are actually two, those are two different things, right? And like. But having, having it taste like you remember it can also evoke positive emotion because you're bringing back that those memories of childhood when you are probably much happier than you are as an adult. (laughs) That's depressing, but sure. I mean, yes, they were simpler times. Yes. I, I never once was worrying about anything serious while eating while eating a dunkaroo so that, i no. guess that's true the other one that got rated pretty high were gushers were you a fan of gushers growing up no not uh, my style of i love snack. gushers and then they did the lunchables they the pizza one was didn't taste that great but you would still they still ate the entire thing versus the sandwich one they said the lunch meats were pretty like slimy, which I remember them being slimy when I was young and, be, yeah. and kind of saying like, this is a terrible lunch meat, you know, like I'm not eating this for the lunch meat. Yeah. I never really had the Lunchable pizza. The Lunchable, oh, I loved the Lunchable pizza. The, lunch, the Lunchable sandwich I had, I mean, not regularly, but definitely somewhat consistently. And I have fond memories of the Lunchable sandwich. And if I try and picture it, I feel like I would still, not that I would be going out and buying it regularly, but I feel like I would still enjoy it today. Like if you, if someone, if I was over at someone's house and we were wanting snacks and they got out some Lunchable sandwiches, <laughs> I, w- I would happily, I would happily eat one. I love the concept of that. You know, it's like, hey, you guys want to come over? We're going to make some like appetizers, set out some nice food. <laughs> they just set out like 15 boxes of little Lunchables and you got to like individually open them. <laughs> I wouldn't complain. And then oh, afterwards we so could great. make like a, we could play some GoldenEye. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> the The other thing that popped up was, um, did you ever eat Lucky Charms as a child? I mean, yes, but not really. I will say I was in a family where the more sugary cereals were not something we really had consistently. Like Frosted Flakes were as sugary as things kind of got on a regular basis. So I definitely had them, but they were never regularly stocked in our house. So you're saying you were a pretty salty and sour family? (laughs) (laughs) From a a cereal perspective, yeah. Yeah. So I guess you are what you eat, right? <laughs> yes, sure. So according to the website, Iwaspoison.com, which they collect reports from consumers about whether they feel as if they were poisoned, there's been a hundred reports that people have experienced gastrointestinal issues ranging from nausea and diarrhea to vomiting after eating specifically Lucky Charms. <sighs> I mean, I don't know how I don't know how to read into that because I feel like you could get those reports about pretty much any product. You know, like someone is going to have an upset stomach and attribute it to something. Yeah, and that's I thought the same thing. But the issue is, is that there aren't any other cereals that people are putting this in for. Like it is specifically for the Lucky Charms. But it is funny because you read some of them, and one was like, 
my child ate Lucky Charms every day for three months straight for breakfast. And then he stopped eating it. And a week later, he felt really good. It's like, yeah, is that your child being poisoned? Or is that not eating 100 grams of sugar at your first meal of the day? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, it's like the supersize me argument, right? The documentary, which I'm not saying that eating McDonald's for every meal over the course of a month is ever going to lead to great results. But he went into it and was like, not only am I going to eat McDonald's every day for every meal. But I'm going to eat McDonald's like an asshole for every meal. Like it wasn't eating it like a normal, somewhat normal, sensible human being might approach, or even as if McDonald's might kind of want you to do. It was like literally, why not? Why not have three Big Macs? You know, like, why don't I do that for lunch? It's just like, I think even McDonald's would kind of tell you, probably shouldn't do that. We'll sell them to you, but you probably shouldn't. But I, and yeah, I think that's the thing is, Again, Lucky Charms, probably, you know, definitely not part of a stable nutritional diet for a, particularly for a young child, but can't be like, well, they're poisoned because I fed them to my kid for every meal for seven years. And then he was not great. I fed them to my child for every meal with half milk, half bleach, and he feels terrible. <laughs> but it was definitely the Lucky Charms. But apparently the feds are investigating. There's been so many reports. So great. stay tuned for further information. Tackling the big topics. What a great long play that would be for General Mills. I don't know what the long play is, but to slowly... Just poisoning people? <laughs> yeah, but what, what are they getting out of it? I don't know yet. That's too TVD. But the slow poisoning of select American youth via the Lucky Charms, that's a, that's a long play there. Yeah, again, yeah, I'm, I'm agree with you. I don't know what the real benefit is. I don't know what the benefit of poisoning your customer base is. Sort of, but yeah, maybe it's a, a large part of a larger conspiracy theory. You know, speaking of conspiracy theories, for whatever reason, we've spoken about my YouTube rabbit holes that I go down occasionally. I have been on just a Titanic-related YouTube rabbit hole now for several days. Don't know why I'm not particularly interested in the Titanic overall. Oh wait, wait! It is actually. I thought you meant like uh, you have been on a very large. No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. Specific. The the topic is the the ship Titanic. The ship, the Titanic, not the movie. The ship, and everything from you know how it, you know, sort of what happened, how it transpired, theories about sort of elements that contributed to the. The, the sinking and you know lots of bits and pieces some, some of the in some of the con it's very repetitive i will say like if you watch one titanic documentary you kind of watch them all but they will each try and bring their own thing the one piece of information that i was completely unaware of maybe it gets mentioned in the movie i have only seen the movie once back when it came out i you know it has the four funnels on the titanic one of them was not operational one of them was just for show it was just a hollow funnel that was there because the white star line knew that people associated four funnels with speed. So they just added a fake fourth funnel onto the ship. But I, I, I want to say it had to, it was fake, but did it also put smoke out? No. Are you sure? Because I think in pictures, there's all of them look like they have smoke coming out. I think some of the pictures are not of the, oftentimes when you see pictures of the Titanic, which 
reported to be the Titanic. It's not actually the Titanic. It's one of the sister ships. So I think this is one of the other things. But but no, it didn't get. It was hollow, and it had a, a ladder running up it that could be used as a kind of something of a kind of point for observation but now it's just a hollow funnel that's quite interesting i was it completely un- it's it's not f- groundbreaking in any way but it was completely unaware of this fact and it's pretty much the only thing i took away from all these documentaries i watched did this stem because of yesterday april 10th was the 110th anniversary of the boarding of the titanic no i i think I've, i started this rabbit hole probably on friday and I, I probably completed the rabbit hole today. I think I have exhausted any interest in the Titanic at this point. Now, maybe that's why I originally was suggested a video because it's kind of around the anniversary. So that might be why it somehow appeared, appeared on my suggested viewing on YouTube, which is, I you know, I wasn't searching for anything Titanic related. But, but no, that isn't what inspired me. I did not seek this content out. It was just on the right-hand side. I saw it and went, why don't I watch this one? And nine hours later, I think I've consumed almost all of the content on the the internet related to the Titanic. (laughs) You know, um, your your esteemed friend, Bill Simmons, he does the Rewatchables podcast. And I recently listened to the episode they did on the Titanic. And it was actually a pretty good episode (laughs) because they go into a 15 minute rant about how Rose might have been the worst person on the Titanic and how she was a terrible person. And they go through like all the ways upon which she was like a pretty shitty person. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's one of those things that people think is a unique take that kind of everyone's, you know, because there's obviously been the big debate about how there was definitely space for both of them on the. But it goes a lot Don't past worry. that. That's what I enjoy. No, no. They go into like a lot of different details about like all the ways in which he's a, like an actually a pretty shitty person. Yeah. But no, it's not a movie I've ever rewatched. And I, nor do I have any desire to do so. Even during all of this Titanic rabbit hole, never thought to myself, you know what I should do? I should watch that blockbuster Hollywood movie. Oh, I think you're missing out. It's a great movie. Special effects still hold up. Do they? Yeah, I watched it like eight months ago. I've seen clips where when it's the the shot of the boat kind of moving by and that's all animated, right? It looks very cartoonish to me. But And maybe that's where you're getting the idea that there's there was smoke coming out of all four. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of the movie. I thought you were going to tell me that the the necklace was was real. The hope, the hope, was it the hope diamond? Is that what it is? No, it's not the hope diamond, no, is it? The hope diamond is real. Real, the hope diamond is real, so, yeah. So I'll tell you that. But no, but what do they call it in the movie? I don't remember. As I said, I've not seen that movie since 1997, so I have no idea. I can kind of picture it as blue or whatever it is, but I have no idea what it's called. The heart of the ocean. Man, there's going to be a lot of people yelling at us for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Would Sam have known that if he were still on this podcast? Um, he's pretty good at random trivia. I would say no. I'll ask him off podcast. Um, well, we'll get an answer in six months then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't think he would have known that. But maybe. He, he does always have bizarre tidbits, you know, when it comes to random knowledge. So it's possible, but it, it would surprise me. 
All right, well, I guess with that, we'll wrap it up. So.